Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. Let's start again. Ready? This is Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. <laughs> and I'm Buzz Eisenberg, and that's a heck of a way to start out Monday. What, what a start. However, we, things will improve because, Buzz, what I am really interested in knowing is a, more about a story that has not received, I think, adequate attention here in Western Massachusetts involving the University of Massachusetts and the community and jobs and research and a lot. And we have guests who are going to tell us about all of that. That's a, that's a wonderful lead-in to, uh, to the story that happened earlier this month that the Mass Tech Collaborative awarded $5 million. And that $5 million was intended to boost certain technologies that would assist production here in western Massachusetts. It's a collaboration between UMass, Amherst, and, well, let's meet the people that we're collaborating with, which is uh, Director Pat Larkin of Innovation Institute, uh, at, and I think also a deputy director at the Mass Tech Collaborative himself. It's Pat Larkin. Uh, hello, Pat. Hello, Buzz and Bill. It's a pleasure to meet you. It's uh, our pleasure, and thank you for joining us today. And also with you, I think, is uh, Sharon Wall, who is the Portfolio Director for Research and Development Fund uh, there at the Innovation Institute. Um, and I think, Sharon, you're largely responsible, or at least in part responsible, for, for uh, securing this $5 million grant. Is that right? Um, in part. And good morning. In part. Uh, let's go back to Pat Larkin. So um, there's a lot of weediness in this story, but it's, a, as Bill said, a really important story. So, Pat, for, let's start with what is Innovation Institute? Actually, could we start with somewhere else and go back to Innovation Institute? Sure. What's the $5 million for? <laughs> The $5 million is for a center at the University of Massachusetts uh, to focus on optical coatings and precision optics. Okay, uh, stop right there for one second and translate uh, technology into English for me. For those of us who, you know, didn't grow up with this stuff, what does all that mean? I don't know, Sharon, how would you describe that? So I would say it's optical lenses, but it's a new technology that allows the changes in the optical lenses to perform better and do the cool things that we use our phones for or um, in the future for AR and VR technology, virtual reality, um, and aerospace and defense capabilities that um, are used in all different technologies. So those little tiny optical lenses, and we're not the experts on the, the technology itself, but it's, it's pretty cool. And the five million dollars. So, uh, fiber, fiber optics is a good example of optical technology as well, which I think your listeners would be familiar with. Okay, and the five million dollars is going to UMass to do what? You, the university is going to uh, enhance and develop uh, uh, these types of technologies in a more, uh, you know, in, in a more efficient way. Uh, they're going to develop things that they would call meta lenses. Uh, which improve efficiencies and utilization of these optic technologies. Uh, th these, are, these are items that could show up anywhere on AR, VR systems, uh, all, all, all kinds of applications. They're used what, in... What is an AR, and, what's an AR system and a VR system? We got we to gotta speak so we all understand it. I gotcha. It would be augmented and virtual realities. You see that in 
some of the glassware that folks wear when they're uh, in a virtual reality environment. And this is going to UMass to do research or production? What is it going to UMass? What are they going to do with the $5 million? That's what I'm really trying to get to. Sharon? So the cool thing is they're going to add some equipment to their existing facility, and they're going to make this organization, this facility, this open access facility, um, accessible to other companies to come in and test and simulate manufacturing. And they're partnering with EMA, Electromagnetic Applications. It's another company that's in the Berkshire Innovation Institute in the BIC. Um, and they're going to test these lenses in real-world scenarios and get ready for manufacturing. So it's that bridge from re research to manufacturing. And is this a department at UMass that's doing this? Is this a part of UMass that is involved in uh, manufacturing? Who at UMass? Who's going to get their hands on $5 million and told, do some research, bring this to market? Well, the lead, the lead researcher is a professor named James Watkins. Uh, and he works closely with his co, uh, his, his uh, Dr. Amir Arbabi. Uh, they have been involved at the university for a long time. They run the Center for Hierarchical Nanomanufacturing. Uh, and so it's, uh, it's, it, it, it's, at, it, it's at within the Department of Engineering at UMass Amherst. So I just want to be clear. Uh, there's a lot that we've been reading about. A lot of it is, as I said earlier, weedy for those of us who are not uh, technologists and don't understand the role that emerging technology is going to play in our life, in our world, in the future. But we're talking about innovations which could change the way things are manufactured. Uh, we're talking about, uh, first of all, this collaborative. It's a collaborative research and development program from the uh, Healy Driscoll administration, and they previously gave $19.7 million through the Federal Chips and Science Act to create these kinds of microelectronic situations. What, now, you have this, you're part of this collaborative, and you're in fact, an, uh, I think, a deputy director, Pat Larkin. Um, yeah. So, how does this, is this a public-private uh, collaborative. It's a state and academic collaborative. Could you explain how this is working and what impact do you think it's going to have on our world? Yeah, no, uh, great questions. First of all, let me just be clear. The uh, Massachusetts Technology Collaborative is a state economic development agency. Uh, we have, as the, the chairperson of our board, the Secretary of Economic Development. Our board is appointed by uh, the Governor of the Commonwealth. And so we work very collaboratively with industry and with academia to really try to identify those emerging opportunities on the landscape that we here in the Commonwealth can be very competitive for. And so Sharon runs a research and development fund, which is our investment tool that we join with industry and academia around to make high value investments like the one that we're talking about this morning in optical coatings and precision optics. You raised a second project that we're very involved in called the ME Commons, where the Commonwealth 
the, the Massachusetts Technology Collaborative has received a Department of Defense award to support and stand up a project known as the Northeast Microelectronics Center Hub. And that $19 million is an investment by the federal government in the state to build capacity here to drive new partnerships to address federal technology needs that will be coming up over the course of the next five years. Uh, they call them call for papers. That's a separate project that we have underway that will be used to address all kinds of technical opportunities that are priorities of the federal government. This, this is a, a serious innovation in terms of the country. I think this, this is the first such collaborative in the country. Do I have that right? It's one of eight that were awarded by the federal government uh, last month. Yes, we're the first one in New England. I have two very different questions, but the first one is, does this mean jobs in Western Massachusetts in and around UMass? Is this something like uh, the UMass version of what happened in, in and around uh, Stanford with Silicon Valley uh, on a smaller scale? The opticals investment we can point to immediately and testify to job impacts and job growth. We have a company that is involved in the consortium right from the start, EMA, and this firm is doing testing and simulation of these optical lenses in very extreme conditions so as to validate and bring these products to the marketplace. They will do some manufacturing themselves. They will also support the manufacturer amongst other firms. So yes, this will bring jobs to Pioneer Valley. With any companies that exist now or with new companies that will spring up? Well, it, for companies that exist now, any that are in the optical space uh, and, and EMA itself will create new jobs. And it will also support new startups. There will be ideation, new ideas that flow from the work that's taking place in this center, and we would anticipate there'll be new startups. Uh, Sharon Wall, you are the portfolio director uh, for research and development at Innovation Institute. Securing this $5 million, and you're one of the people who worked on securing it, uh, is, do we have a reasonable expectation that based on this grant, there will in fact successful innovations in the optical areas that you're talking about? Absolutely. Um, and we should say, too, this is a $5 million investment um, from the Innovation Institute, but it's also matched with $5 million from the um, applicants themselves. So it's a 10-year, uh, $10 million, three-year program. So yes, we, um, we expect to see not only economic development, but also workforce training in real world simulation. So students from the BIC, uh, from BCC, Berkshire um, Community College and Springfield Technical Community College will also utilize these facilities to learn and grow and gain experience to work in the industry. So we hope to do both, grow economic development from a job standpoint, but also help train um, those critical resources that are needed in this industry on a broader level. What gives us confidence, Sharon Wall, 
that in fact uh, there is a next generation in the arena of well, what Pat referred to as fiber optics, what what you referred to as these optical innovations. What gives us so much confidence that there is going to be innovation? Um, several things. Uh, certainly in 2019, the World Economic Forum named meta lenses as one of the top 10 technologies. Um, also, UMass Amherst and EMA are already global, globally recognized leaders in the fabrication of these um, components. And they're building upon capabilities and technologies that already exist in their labs today. This is augmented with additional expensive equipment to grow and evolve with the technologies. Bill, I'm, I'm feeling um, a little bit uh, insecure about my own lack of understanding. Do you understand what these optical technologies are? I don't. But we're going to clarify that in just a moment, and we're going to come back to this question. I believe either Pat or Sharon mentioned the Department of Defense. I want to hear about that right after this. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. The Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster, Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2, only on WHMP. Brought to you by Business West. The vital business news in Western Mass is in Business West. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster, WHMP. This is Greenfield Mayor Roxanne Wiedegartner reminding you to vote November 7. Greenfield needs a qualified, committed person at the helm of this more than $60 million operation that we know of as the city of Greenfield. I am proud to be endorsed by Governor Maura Healey and Lieutenant Governor Kim Driscoll, but the endorsement that I really need is yours. Your vote on November 7 means a lot to me. Let's move forward together. Paid for by Committee to Elect Roxanne Wiedegartner. I'm Sarah McEwen, the Nursing Director for Emergency and Ambulatory Services at Cooley Dickinson Hospital. Community hospitals are the cornerstone of health, healing, and well-being for our local community. It's a privilege and a pleasure to take care of our community, of you and the people you love. During this season of thanks, the Cooley Dickinson team is grateful to the community that supports us through your kind words, generous gifts, and legacy plans. Please visit us at CooleyDickinson.org giving. You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts and messages from community nonprofits. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back. We're talking with Director Pat Larkin of Innovation Institute. Um, and the uh, deputy director, I believe, of, at Mass Tech, this collaborative, which is bringing us these uh, technological advances under a $5 million grant that came from the Healy administration. We're also talking with Sharon Wall, who's the portfolio director of R&D, uh, Research and Development uh, Fund at Innovation Institute, and who was uh, in part one of the uh, 
collaborators that resulted in this $5 million grant we've been discussing. And uh, two things. I Just before the break, I asked Bill whether he knew what these optical technologies are. And Bill followed by pointing out that there have been recent protests against a, an optical uh, technologies uh, producer here, a defense contractor, uh, L3 Harris. So, um, Bill, uh, do you know what optical technologies mean? If I knew what optical technologies mean, I wouldn't be sitting at this microphone having other people run the board and make us go live and otherwise be competent on technology. No, not a clue, but I do understand that we're talking about a highly sophisticated uh, utilization of, of optics. I got that much. And I would like to know a couple of things, and this is backfilling where Buzz started initially, which is what is the Innovation Institute? Are you a private nonprofit? What role do you play in getting $5 million to UMass? Yes. So the Innovation Institute is a division of the Mass Tech Collaborative. We are a state economic development agency, and we manage a $50 million R&D fund on behalf of the state. And we make strategic investments in large-scale collaborative research that's focused on growing our economy in Massachusetts in critical technology and industry segments. So we've put a variety of investments out in everything from robotics uh, to computing systems to uh, to the optical coatings and precision optics investment. Uh, and so that's what we do. We're economic development. Okay, and the $5 million that you gave to UMass, just so I can be clear, it goes to a department, it goes to an institute. Who gets the $5 million to utilize? It, to go, it goes to the university to invest in equipment that is going to be utilized in the development of these technologies. By a specific department or a specific professor? Uh, it's, 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 it's by department and the professors, uh, I, I've indicated to you the two professors that are what we call the principal investigators. They, they have the mind share around what it is we're trying, they're trying to do in this center. Uh, and so that would be Dr. Watkins and, uh, and, uh, professor, uh, uh, or Bobby. Okay. And they will work with students. They'll work in their own labs on these. They work alone. They work with others. How does, how, what happens? They, they, they someone gets a $5 million their... check this week, and they say, okay, how are we going to spend it? How are they going to spend it? <laughs> They're going to spend it on the refinement and the production capabilities of these technologies. They're going to partner with industry who have real needs and real opportunities that they would like to develop and bring to market. And yes, they will work with students on the development of these technologies as well so that they can train the workforce that's actually going to go to work in these, uh, in these uh, firms that utilize the technologies that are developed. This is Dan. Uh, biotech is a big sector in the state of Massachusetts, especially around Boston. You know, we have world-class hospitals. Can you talk about the application to healthcare? Uh, I, I'm sure there's surgical applications that would uh, deploy uh, optics technologies that would benefit from this capability. And a, a lot of the equipment that is used in medical devices would have 
uh, enhanced microelectronics and in 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 optics. Right, right. I mean, you had said cell phones, but it isn't just cell phones. It's you know, optics are used in a bunch of cameras involving healthcare sector. So you know, it's pretty exciting what it can do in certain sectors across the Commonwealth. Well, I know it, yeah, yeah, it, in my rural area when we we finally got. Um, uh, service <laughs> for you know high speed uh service fiber optics it, it was fiber optics that they had to you know all those cables that run alongside our telephone and electrical so i know it's a big deal i just don't get it well i mean in the future i would assume if, if i'm understanding this conversation correctly the fiber optics will get smaller faster there's an efficiency that they have spoken about that i think that this this will uh, translate to meaning our internet speeds should ideally get faster. I mean, out here there's also a big gap between us and you know Boston and what services you can get in terms of speed of internet and stuff like that. So it's an economic driver. You know, five million dollars is five million dollars, and, and and it's also matched. So uh, it's really like ten million dollars. But why, Pat Larkin, is it always framed as optical? Opt I think of optical as like my glasses, right? I'm going to an yeah. optician. So yeah. what's optical? <laughs> Anything that uses light in order to perform a technical function there is what is optical, like data transfer, it's, it's, capture, storing, imaging, sensing. They use light. Uh, you just made my day. See, now you, I you learned it. something. Light. I just learned something. <laughs> okay, last question from Mike. Um, you mentioned the obvious, I guess, that there is an overlap between civilian uses of this technology and military uses of the technology. Has there been any pushback from the potential for some of this to go to uh, defense contractors? Pat Larkin? Or? Uh, no, uh, you're absolutely correct. Uh, these technologies uh, have applications across all disciplines, all segments of our economy, uh, and no, no real pushback on the investment itself on any front. Uh, the world is going to deploy these capabilities. This is the way the innovation economy is moving. And to have a, a capability coming out of UMass Amherst to really be at the cutting edge is really going to uh, uh, benefit our local economy and, and benefit uh, the university. Well, um, I really want to thank you, Director Pat Larkin of the Innovation Institute, and you, Sharon Wall, the Portfolio Director of Research and Development Fund at uh, Innovation Institute, and all the people at the Mass Tech Collaborative who have uh, continued to place UMass at the, uh, at the head of development of technology uh, in this country. I want to thank you for joining us today and uh, wish you good luck. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good day. We'll be right back. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Good morning for WHMP News. I'm Sarah Robertson. Amherst's Crest Department which is an alternative to policing program known as the Community Responders for Equity, Safety, and Service, is looking for a new director. The program's goal is to send trained social workers to certain emergency calls where police are not necessary, such as mental health crises or domestic disputes. The program began last year with a 10-member staff led by Director Earl Miller, who has since resigned from his leadership position after two months of administrative leave in an internal investigation. Town Manager Paul Bockelman. 
recognizing that there was clearly a vacuum in leadership with him being on leave, that's why I established the interim leadership team. The interim leadership team includes the fire department chief, the town's DEI director, and a representative from the police department. The interim leadership team is continuing the work of the department uninterrupted, said Crest Operations Assistant Kat Newman. The beauty of this work is that there are always people to help and always people that want to receive and both give that help. So I think even amidst sort of the current situation, that doesn't mean that lives stop and the work stops. According to Bockelman, the Crest Department will begin taking calls directly from the town's emergency dispatch line by the end of the calendar year. The suspect in a mass shooting in Lewiston, Maine, is dead. Authorities found 40-year-old Robert Card deceased with a self-inflicted gunshot wound on Friday night in a storage trailer in Lisbon, a town about 10 miles away from the shootings occurred. Card is the suspect in a series of shootings that killed 18 people and wounded 13 others at a bar and a bowling alley in Maine's second most populous city last Wednesday. Early voting is underway for some western Massachusetts cities with contested mayoral elections. Residents can cast their ballots beginning today in Westfield, Springfield, Chicopee, and North Adams. There will be no early voting in Greenfield, Pittsfield, or Agawam. Election Day is next Tuesday, November 7th. Get takeout, save 30%. Get candles, or hit the links, save 30%. Dog grooming, outdoor recreation, burritos, save 30%. The Shop 30 store, full value gift certificates to local restaurants and merchants, plus tickets and events. Just click, print, and save 30% on the stuff you were gonna buy anyway. The Shop 30 store, open right now at whmp.com. You want to feel important. You want to be part of something bigger, something that matters and can help change things. You want to feel like you belong. We know. We felt that way, too. And that's why we did something about it. We aren't just Army National Guard soldiers. We are normal people just like you. But our part-time service in the Army National Guard means we get to be more. When our communities are in need, we get the chance to stand up and do something about it. We get to serve in our own region and help the people we call neighbors. From the coasts of Maine, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and New Jersey. The small communities of Connecticut, Delaware, Maryland, and Pennsylvania. To the dense forests of New Hampshire, Vermont, and New York, and historic Washington, D.C. We are here for our hometowns. And together, we can make a difference. Take on your legacy. Visit NationalGuard.com to find out more. Sponsored by the Massachusetts Army National Guard. Aired by the Massachusetts Broadcasters Association at this station. You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts, and messages from community nonprofits. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We welcome back to the show Professor Emeritus Michael Clare, Professor of Peace and World Security Studies and Defense Correspondent for The Nation magazine, who has been with us on issues of war and peace on a regular basis. And we really appreciate your time today, Professor Michael Clare. Let's turn to the Hamas-Israel war. I'd like to find out from you what you think the status is of that war at this moment because the question I really want to get to with you, which is 
what is a possible resolution that will not end us in endless war? Talk to us. Okay, well, I think we we all know that it's the war has entered a new phase. Uh, the Israeli Defense Forces have moved into Gaza City, or at least they're moved to the flanks of Gaza City in the in the Gaza Strip. They appear to be uh, surrounding the major population center there, where many Hamas fighters are believed to be holed up, and they're firing. Uh, into the into the densely this densely populated area with tanks and artillery, uh, trying to to force the Hamas fighters out into the open where they could attack them with airstrikes. So it's a new phase of the battle uh, with with Israeli forces in inside Gaza, and surely the uh, casualty rates are going to soar as a consequence. Could you sort out for us this, these competing claims where Hamas says Israel is sending airstrikes into civilian areas? Israel says we are targeting Hamas fighters who are using the people, uh, uh, the people uh, of Gaza as human shields. Uh, where does the truth lie in that? Well, I think both both the stories are true. Uh, uh, the Gaza Strip is a densely populated, largely urban area with two million people in it. The whole thing is the size of New York City. Uh, so think uh, an area largely composed of apartment buildings, densely connected, and Hamas fighters are dispersed throughout this area, many of them underground. Uh, and on top of them are tenements, uh, essentially apartment buildings with with civilians in them. So uh, Israel claims that to 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 flush out the fighters, they have to destroy the apartment buildings. Uh, and there's there's no way of getting around the fact that that in the process they're going to kill a lot of civilians. I'd be interested to know from you, Michael Clare, who have been intimately involved in issues and actions of war and peace for many, many years. I think 50 years as the defense correspondent for The Nation magazine. What's going on here behind the scenes? Who's saying what to whom? Well, <clears throat> you know, if we were to have this conversation two weeks ago, three weeks ago, Bill, we would probably be talking about a massive invasion of Israeli forces into Gaza uh, with uh, much higher levels of Israeli uh, attacks and bombardment and, and uh, a much, much more intense fighting than we're seeing yet. Now, we may see heavier fighting yet to come. And in fact, that's very likely. But behind the scenes, I think we're seeing pressure by the Biden administration and President Macron of France was just there recently and other leaders putting pressure on the Netanyahu government to exercise uh, more restraint in the fighting to try to reduce the level of civilian casualties, knowing that uh, if there are more incidents like the 
hospital explosion a few weeks ago when hundreds of people were killed. There's still dispute about uh, who is responsible for that explosion, but the fact that it's seen in the Arab and Muslim worlds as the result of an Israeli attack, if there are more incidents like that, and, and there very likely could be, uh, this could uh, set off an explosion throughout the Middle East and beyond and lead to a much greater war in the Middle East that uh, certainly Washington doesn't want and much of the rest of the world doesn't want. So um, I think behind the scenes, you're seeing pressure on Israel to uh, scale back the level of fighting in Gaza uh, to, 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 to try to prevent massive uh, civilian casualties. What, what I've been reading, Michael Clare, is there's over 8,000 uh, estimated, uh, over 8,300 uh, people who, Gazans who have been killed, not to mention how many have been injured and incapable of getting hospital care. Um, out of the roughly 200 uh, countries that are members of the United Nations, only 14 wouldn't sign on to a resolution deploring Israel's incursion into Gaza. And uh, it, there is just uh, so much evidence that people are forgetting about the horror that was October 7th because of the Israelis' choices in uh, its assault um, on Gaza. I'm really wondering whether this, uh, what, what's going to happen on the ground, if in fact this is a ground offensive uh, that's going to be of the kind of duration you're talking about, whether that's just going to further isolate Israel and the United States, uh, Israel's greatest ally, uh, in your view? I, I think there's no question about that, uh, which is why I think the Biden administration, while publicly offering uh, strong support for the Netanyahu government in Israel, uh, behind the scenes is urging Israel to exercise restraint in its attack for exactly that reason. Uh, the U.S. military knows full well from their own experiences in Iraq and in Afghanistan and elsewhere that, uh, that uh, urban warfare of the sort that we could expect in Gaza City uh, is going to result in images of 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 collapsed apartment buildings one after the other and thousands of dead bodies in the rubble and uh, that's gonna those images are gonna be broadcast throughout the Middle East throughout the Muslim world and provoke widespread anger and it's gonna force governments like Egypt and Jordan and, and others in the region that in Saudi Arabia, that have been inching towards closer cooperation with, with Israel to back away, and in some cases to, to provoke uh, higher levels of conflict, which uh, nobody really wants. Uh, but that could be the outcome of a, a, of a more explosive war in Gaza. So there's a lot hanging uh, on on the on the nature of combat in Gaza and the images that are going to come out of that war. Michael Clare, Professor Emeritus of Peace and World Security Studies at Hampshire College, defense correspondent for The Nation magazine. I would like to follow up with you on this topic and ask you 
a, a question that is just a bit uh, a, has a bit of a different focus, which is what is the U.S. doing militarily at this point? Why are we sending aircraft carrier groups to the region? That's that's part of this larger picture, Bill. Um, there, there, there are uh, m many in the White House and in the Pentagon who fear that, as I did, that this war could spread. Uh, for example, um, there are deep worries that Hezbollah, an ally of Hamas, Hezbollah in Lebanon could open a second front against Israel in north in the north, and Hezbollah has been firing missiles into northern Israel, uh, just a few at a time so far. But Hezbollah is capable of attacking Israel with a much larger barrage of missiles, and and who knows what what other uh, capacity they have. So part of the reason that those aircraft carriers are there to are, are to deter Hezbollah from take from undertaking such attacks, and if they do, to support Israel in defending itself from Hezbollah. But it's also a warning to Iran and and a possible other belligerents like uh, the uh, Houthis in in uh, in Yemen to step up their attacks on Israel. These are all potential hotspots uh, that the US could, uh, wants to avoid increased violence, but is clearly prepared to take action if necessary. Which... Uh, the US has already intervened in Yemen in, in, in attacking uh, Houthi positions, and, and uh, uh, we, we could see more of that. Which brings me, Michael Clare, to a question that I have not been able to hear a good answer to, and I would appreciate yours. What was Hamas trying to accomplish when it engaged in this terrorist action? What was the end game as they saw it before they started this conflagration or what has led to a conflagration? Well, uh, of course, I don't know the answer to that. Uh, uh, without talking to, to the people behind it, and, and they're not available. But my best guess is the following. Uh, for the past few years, um, the concerns of the Palestinian people have largely been ignored by Israel, but more importantly, by their allies in the Middle East. Uh, one country after another, has signed uh, what we call the Abraham Accords with Israel, uh, signing peace agreements. Uh, Bahrain, Morocco, other countries have signed these accords, uh, which pay lip service to the possibility sometime down the road of a Palestinian state, but in, in essence, uh, push the Palestinian issue uh, to, to the to be essentially forgotten, and the great, the most important country in the Arab world, Saudi Arabia, has been in intense negotiations with the United States and with Israel about the possibility of joining these accords. There have been very intense diplomacy. 
And this is really what was on Netanyahu's mind in these past months uh, diplomatically, part of the reason he wasn't paying any attention to what was happening in the Gaza Strip uh, when his intelligence officials apparently, according to today's New York Times, uh, were beginning to te were telling him that that there's uh, seen there were signs of increased activity. Uh, he paid them no heed whatsoever uh, because his primary objective uh, uh, has been to uh, sign to try to move forward this agreement with Saudi Arabia, uh, which which would be the crowning jewel of of this drive to uh, gain legitimacy in the Middle East and to push aside the notion of a Palestinian state forever. And uh, so that's what he was focused on. And for many, many Palestinians, uh, th this was a, a, a threat, a, a, a fate that would, would, was causing utter despair. And I think for Hamas, uh, this was their last opportunity, their last chance to uh, to raise the Palestinian issue into the international spotlight once more uh, before they were completely forgotten. That that's that's my guess. It, it's, it was an act of despair, um, a brutal, violent, um, despicable act, but but an act of despair. What I, I what I understand is that the the actual military wing of uh, Hamas, the uh, Al Qassam Brigade, is twenty five thousand strong. Hamas has another eighty thousand in social welfare, um, uh, according to uh, I think his name is Michael Milstein, the head of Palestinian studies at Tel Aviv University. The government of Israel relies heavily on Tel Aviv University's uh, analysis in order to understand. This, but he speculates that the, the, the proximity of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt is in part what resulted in the despair that you're talking about being sort of uh, acted upon by the October 7th attack because, as you say, it was becoming increasingly apparent that they were going to be isolated if they didn't do something to make Israel become unpopular. And Israeli response is, according to Michael Milstein, feeding exactly into the hands of the Muslim Brotherhood and Hamas's intention, which is get Israel to be despised because of its genocidal response. That's, does that make sense to you? Well, uh, I, I, let's be careful about how we d deploy the word genocidal, okay? We could, let's be careful about that. And I don't know enough about the Egyptian um, Muslim Brotherhood's role in all of this to comment on that. But but the larger picture of growing is uh, growing Palestinian despair uh, is is certainly the case. Um, I think there's also uh, efforts by Hamas to uh to to show to, to to demonstrate the ineffectiveness the feebleness of the palestinian authority in the west bank uh and to uh, gain greater traction among the palestinians in the west bank which hamas uh, 
did was not in charge of the Palestinian Authority was. But I don't know if if that answers your question. Best you can, it does. The next question I have is Michael Clare, Professor of Peace and World Security Studies, Defense Correspondent for The Nation magazine. What's the possibility for a ceasefire? We're going to ask you that right after these messages. Well, they spied me a girl before she could leave. I said, let's go play Adam and Eve. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. Rutabagas, sweet potatoes, turnips, and leeks. Local produce is rooting its way to the co-op every day. At the co-op meat counter, try coffee-rubbed hanger steak, a delicious mix of sweet and bold heat. New recipe and you need just a pinch of this herb or that spice? Get just the right amount in the co-op's bulk department. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Hello, I'm Kim Gerald, and I'm here to ask you to vote for Gwen Agna on Tuesday, November 7th. Gwen is running for re-election as an at-large representative on the Northampton School Committee. As a teacher at Jackson Street School, I witnessed Gwen's efforts to build a school culture of caring, learning, and social justice. She is a leader who listens carefully to the whole community. Please vote for Gwen on November 7th. Paid for by the Committee to Re-elect Gwen Agna. Reading is one of life's great pleasures. Having a community bookstore makes it even better. Broadside Bookshop is a community-minded, woman-owned, independent bookstore in downtown Northampton, where you can browse to your heart's content. For book lovers, Broadside is home away from home. You can order virtually any book on the Broadside website and pick it up at the store or have it sent to your door. If you love books, you'll love Broadside Bookshop. Let's experience fitness together. Hi, this is Jessica. And at Fitness Together, we offer personal trainers and customized workouts either in studio or virtually. Located in Northampton and Amherst, we're here to help you reach your goals, be it weight loss, recovery and rehab, improving health, or simply living well. Getting fit, you'll have the energy to do what you love. Visit us at Fitness Together, Amherst or Northampton and become a part of our community today. Fitness Together, your journey to wellness starts with us. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue, we continue our conversation with Professor Emeritus of Peace and World Security Studies at Hampshire College, Michael Clare, who is also the defense correspondent for The Nation magazine. Michael Clare, what's the possibility of a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas at this point? I, I see no possibility of a ceasefire at this point. Not, not, not now. Uh, not with Israel on the verge of a major uh, land assault in Gaza City. I, I think uh, Netanyahu is determined to, uh, to to tell to tell his fellow Israelis that you know we've wiped out Hamas in Gaza, and that's going to be a long, bloody slog. I, I, I don't see a ceasefire occurring. Netanyahu has to 
has to remain in power as a war president, war prime minister, uh, because of the growing um, clamor for his uh, resignation or, uh, or, or something. He has yet to apologize for the mistakes he made that allowed the October 7th attack to occur or, or to, to occur without an adequate response. Uh, and so I think he, he's going to want to continue this fight uh, for a long time. Well, I mean weeks okay. before My, there's a ceasefire. Michael Clare, I don't understand how Israel, if it goes forward with this ground assault on Gaza and Gaza City, I don't understand how Israel gets out of Gaza because getting in is probably the easiest part. Could you reflect on that, please? Well, this is exactly what uh, U.S. officials are telling the Israelis over and over again. That's why they've delayed their ground invasion and why they're proceeding in such a slow, methodical fashion, because U.S. officials have been, uh, Biden has sent over his top military officials one after the other to caution them against getting too deeply involved in Gaza because exactly the difficulty of getting out and uh, and what they're reporting back to Biden is that uh, the Israelis don't have a plan for getting out at this point. It's uh, at this point is just destroyed, destroyed, destroyed. Is there a plan to get the hostages out? Uh, no, I. If you mean, is there a plan to get them out alive? Uh, that that um, that moment has been lost. That would have required a ceasefire, as in my, in my opinion. At, at this point, uh, I, I can't see how you could get them out. Uh, the, the hostages are trapped. I gather we. I, I should say we, we. We understand from from those hostages that were released that they're being held in the same underground caverns as the the Hamas fighters themselves are hiding from the bombardment by Israeli jets and artillery. And so th they are likely to suffer the same fate as Hamas soldiers who are trapped in Hamas city. I don't see how they can be saved as long as Israel continues to bombard Hamas. Uh, Hama, uh, Gaza City, uh, unless unless Israel calls a halt in the fighting and allows aid to to reach uh, the Gaza Strip uh, and negotiations are undertaken, I don't, I don't see how they can be released. If Israel causes catastrophic uh, damage to Gaza and to Hamas. What would prevent Hamas from rising again from, from the rubble and the ashes? Nothing. Okay, so where does Israel go? What does it do? It seems committed to a ground invasion, but it's a ground invasion that gets you to endless war. 
Make me feel. But take the, me take me off this ledge, please. At this point, that's where we're headed. I think that 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 Biden and Macron and other leaders of the world have to persuade the Israelis that this is that war, endless war, is not going to pr protect Israel in the future. So the, the Israelis and other leaders of the Middle East have to work out a plan that allows a, a Palestinian state to come into existence that gives the Palestinians hope, and then there might be peace. We've been talking with Michael Clare, Professor Emeritus of Peace and World Security Studies at Hampshire College, defense correspondent for The Nation magazine. Thank you for your time and insights, Michael. We really appreciate it. I hope it was useful. I grew up in West County, but I didn't know there were places like Nelkrit until I realized that my mom needed some help. My dad was always controlling and kind of jealous. But after I left for college, it was just the two of them, and it seemed like it was just getting worse. My mom wasn't going out as much, and he would check her cell phone all the time to see who she was calling. Then he started threatening her. I talked to a friend who lives in the area, and she told me about Nelkwit. I called the hotline because I was worried about her staying in the house that night. They understood why I was so worried, and they were able to help her to get to my grandma's house in Boston. Nelquit, New England Learning Center for Women in Transition, offering 24-hour crisis line support, walk-in appointments, counseling, safe plan, legal services, and supportive supervised children's visitation. If you or someone you know needs Nelquit, please reach out to them. They'll be there. 479 Main Street, Greenfield, Nelquit.org, N-E-L-C-W-I-T.org or call 772-0871. WHMP Northampton and WRS. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And I'm Bill Newman. And on the front page of today's Daily Hampshire Gazette, top of the fold, Cannabis businesses sue over federal ban. The subhead Northampton, New York firms file a lawsuit in bid to end double standard. This by James Pentland, staff writer for the Daily Hampshire Gazette. A coalition of cannabis businesses is suing the U.S. Attorney General over the federal government's prohibition of pot cultivation, manufacture, possession, and distribution, saying it penalizes activities that are legal under state law. Federal prohibition means regulated marijuana businesses in Massachusetts and other states cannot use banks or take credit card payments, and their employees are shut out of federal programs and may be unable to obtain mortgages. Quote, this is groundbreaking, Northampton Attorney Thomas Lesser said of the lawsuit. Everyone expects it will end up with the Supreme Court. Lesser's firm, Lesser Newman, Alio and Nasser, is assisting primary counsel Boy Schiller Flexner of New York in representing the plaintiffs. With us in the studio, we have the aforementioned and aforequoted Tom Lesser. Thanks for coming in this morning, Tom. We really appreciate it. I'd like to know if you could tell us in a succinct way for our listeners, what is it that this lawsuit hopes to accomplish? In 1970, Congress passed the Controlled Substance Act. It outlawed marijuana. It placed it on what's called a Schedule I along with heroin. 
It did it on grounds that are no longer applicable today. It did it when 50, all 50 states prohibited marijuana. It did it on the basis of the Interstate Commerce Clause of the Constitution. Today, 38 states have marijuana in some form or another in a legal fashion. The federal government is not enforcing its laws against them. The interstate, interstate commerce reasons have disappeared, and that's why we brought this lawsuit. A lot has changed since 1970. Okay. The Gazette reports the law at issue in the suit is the Controlled Substances Act, which bars the production, distribution, and possession of marijuana that's under federal law, regardless of whether those activities cross state lines or are conducted within the borders of a single state. Why is this suit going to change, assuming it's successful? Why will this suit change people's lives and change the cannabis industry? Because people in the cannabis industry are not able to take advantage of many aspects of federal programs. That begins with taxation. They're taxed in a totally different way. They're not able to get personal mortgages. They're not able to declare bankruptcy. They're not able to get small business loans. They're not able to, as you say, get credit cards. They're not able to take advantage of banking. There have been bills passed with regard to banking every year in the House. They've never gone anywhere, which would allow it. So now it's a cash industry. Um, It would be a a monumental change to people in the industry. What about for people who access the industry and our consumers. Does it, will it change their lives? It will allow, I almost said our lives, but let's it, go with their lives. <laughs> it, will, it will allow them to use credit cards. That will be the major change for people who access it. What, what happens is it used to be marijuana went from state to state back in 1970 when this law was passed. Now in Massachusetts, we have a highly regulated industry it's called a seed to sale industry. Every seed is accounted for. If you don't grow a seed, that's accounted for. There's huge surveillance. There are video cameras everywhere. No, none of the marijuana leaves the state. It's all conducted within the state as interstate commerce. It shouldn't be regulated by the federal government. Okay, so this case was filed where and why? It was filed in the United States District Court in the Western District of Massachusetts, where three plaintiffs said they wanted to participate in it, who are local, and one multi-state organization decided to participate as a plaintiff also. The case will go before the judge, the judge in the Western Division of the United States District Court for the District of Massachusetts, uh, Judge Mastriani. Uh, Will he make a decision you think anytime soon? And then what happens? The first thing that will happen is a motion to dismiss by the federal government. Uh, that has to be filed. Uh, that can be filed. It has to be filed within 60 days. It will be filed. Uh, then the plaintiffs uh, have 14 days to respond. We'll have our brief ready to file. In a recent case I had in U.S. District Court, we had a hearing scheduled within 10 days of the opposition being filed. I can't say that will necessarily happen in this case, but the plaintiff's view is we want to move this along as quickly as possible 
Judge Mastriani will make a decision. Either party will then pro likely appeal it to the First Circuit Court of Appeals, and uh, it goes a little slower there, and then uh, the United and it would be appealed to the United States Supreme Court. Attorney Tom Lesser, who is the actual defendant on the other side of the V? The other, the other side of the V is the Attorney General of the United States. Why is that? Since it's Congress that passes the Controlled Substances Act. But he enforces it. So your lawsuit asks him not to enforce it. The lawsuit asks the court to find that it's unconstitutional and it can't be enforced. It being the Controlled Substances Act? It being the Controlled Substances Act. And what is it that makes it unconstitutional uh, in lay terms? Well, there were three reasons that it was passed a long time ago. One of them has to do with this interstate commerce idea that we were that I was just talking about. It's not interstate commerce anymore. It was to regulate what was happening between the states. And at this point in time, each year Congress actually passes something saying you can't uh, penalize people who have medical marijuana um, businesses. That would be illegal to prosecute them under the Controlled Substance Act. Controlled Substance Act has huge criminal penalties. And uh, it, it's been the Attorney General's position for many years uh, since uh, Obama that they were not going to prosecute businesses that were legally occurring within the state. Well, that's really interesting because the, I understand the papers that uh, you and David Boys have filed uh, in federal district court, you say that when the Controlled Substances Act was passed, 50 states outlawed, give or take, marijuana. That's changed. If the law was constitutional when it was passed, can events make a otherwise constitutional law unconstitutional? When the rationale for them is no longer valid, it can happen. Is this a novel legal theory? Or is this a well-established uh, principle? What? Well, in terms of the Supreme Court ruling against prior precedent, obviously that happens from time to time. Yeah, certainly this Supreme Court. But <laughs> moving on, <laughs> moving on. There is this very, very narrow place where an exception can be carved out. I mean, one of the reasons was they said that marijuana is fungible. It was like wheat. You couldn't differentiate. Just like wheat. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> Just like hemp, yeah, <laughs> which was used in the 1700s and brought over in 1619 to Jamestown. In any case, um, it's not fungible. Clearly, under the new regulatory system of Massachusetts, every seed is identified and perhaps even given a name. Really? <laughs> the seeds have names? You can, no, I, think the seed, for, I think the seeds have numbers. <laughs> Tom, not, Lesser, Attorney Tom Lesser, there have been so many lives that have been, um, well, sometimes destroyed, but certainly damaged um, by people who were charged with possession or distribution of marijuana since it was first placed on the controlled substances uh, list. And... Uh, are, those people have tried to challenge whether or not marijuana is fair to prohibit. Um, what do you think the difference is now that we have commercial entities saying that you're interfering with my business as opposed to you've destroyed my life? 
I think the real real difference is there the attack in this lawsuit is in a very a very broad grounds, and people weren't attacking the prior Supreme Court decision in those cases. They were going on their individual case. Do you have to lose? I don't mean I don't mean that really in in, in any disparaging way. But at the federal district court, if there is Supreme Court precedent against you, and at the First Circuit with their Supreme Court precedent against you. Won't those courts say, or isn't it likely that they'll say, I may or may not agree with what the Supreme Court did many, many years ago, but I'm still bound to follow it? Or am I misstating that, hopefully? Well, I think you're misstating it in the sense that if you have a decision before you as a judge with a rationale that's clearly no longer valid, then you have the obligation to overturn it if it's on constitutional grounds. And my follow-up to Bill's question, Tom Lesser, is um, there's a lot of talk. We've had people on the show to talk about microdosing, that perhaps psilocybin could be used as a medical tool for, by psychologists and psychiatrists to help people with their emotional or mental um, issues. Um, is the next step to challenge other drugs that are uh, under the Controlled Substances Act listed as prohibited by the United States government? Well, I don't think you have other drugs which are legal in 38 states. You don't have other drugs that are as regulated as marijuana. The government gets 60 days to answer, as opposed to private citizens who have 20 days to answer a complaint filed in federal court. Uh, and then you said you will have your response to the motion to dismiss that is expected to be filed by the federal government. Have it ready. You'll file it. There could be a decision from Judge Mastriani, we're not trying to, I'm not trying to predict his schedule or his docket, but you could get a decision relatively quickly, couldn't you, or could you? He, he could certainly have a decision on the motion to dismiss, which would for uh, give us some indication of what his views are on this very quickly. We are speaking with Tom Lesser, who is one of the attorneys on the case challenging the constitutionality of the federal prohibition on marijuana. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk some more about that. We are going to find about, about the case challenging Greenfields taking people's home equity. They owe $2,000 on the house. They sell it for 100000 for back taxes, and then the city keeps the person's $98,000. How is that possibly legal? We'll be right back. Listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. It is critical that the investigation is not limited to federal violations of gender discrimination, but includes the alleged allegations of corruption, nepotism, abuse of power, and use of position to aid Ms. Cunningham's personal business. These allegations actually require an investigation by a different body than a Title IX investigator. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP News, Information, and the Arts. Think identity theft won't happen to you? Think again. There's a new victim every three seconds in the U.S., over 15 million this year alone, and many don't even know they're victims. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you could miss, even when you monitor your credit. If your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. 
No one can prevent all identity theft, but everyone can save up to 25% off their first year with promo code NEWS at lifelock.com. Identity theft protection starts here. Get ready for an action-packed homecoming weekend at UMass. Join us for two thrilling games in Amherst starting Friday, November 3rd, as UMass Hockey takes on the Northeastern Huskies. Puck drop is set for 7.30. The weekend fun continues Saturday, November 4th, as Massachusetts football hosts Merrimack. Tailgating on Saturday, November 4th, starts at 11.30 a.m. and kickoff is set for 3.30. Rally up your friends, family, and classmates and return to campus. Get your tickets now by visiting umassathletics.com slash tickets. You were. You are. UMass. Go out to eat, save 30%. Get a guitar or take lessons, save 30%. Pork chops, rug cleaning, hypnotherapy, save 30%. The Shop 30 store, full value gift certificates to local restaurants and merchants, plus tickets and events. Just click, print, and save 30% on the stuff you were going to buy anyway. The Shop 30 store, open right now at whmp.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with attorney Tom Lesser, Lesser's firm, Lesser Newman, Alio and Nasser. Uh, yes, there is a slight conflict here. Is assisting primary counsel Boy Schiller Flexner of New York and representing the plaintiffs against the attorney general Merrick Garland in this federal district court in Massachusetts challenging the federal ban on marijuana. I'd like to uh, turn to another case you're involved with, Tom Lesser, and that is the case against Greenfield for its equity theft. The city seizes someone's house for, let's say, $2,000 in back taxes. They sell it for $200,000. And, of course, who gets the $198,000 in equity? The city seizes it. How is that possibly legal? I thought the Supreme Court made a ruling last year that said it's completely illegal. So what's this case about? Well, the Supreme Court made the ruling several months ago, and we immediately brought this lawsuit on behalf of two people who had that happen to them. One of them owed ten, twenty thousand dollars in taxes. His property was worth three hundred thousand dollars. It was seized by Greenfield. Greenfield followed a state statutory scheme, and under that state statutory scheme, uh, they claim they can keep the equity. Now, they didn't have to. They didn't have to, but they could. And the state law, in fact, said that. You can keep the equity. It just stinks to high heaven. They didn't have to keep the equity. But in Greenfield, they just took the person's family's money. That's what they did. Well, they they, they also didn't have to bring the lawsuit. There are many cities and towns that don't foreclose on people. They made the choice to embark on this scheme that was unconstitutional. Well, if it's unconstitutional, why do you have to bring a lawsuit to enforce the Constitution again? Isn't one case saying from the United States Supreme Court, what you're doing is unconstitutional? Isn't that enough? Well, the mayor of Greenfield doesn't think so. The mayor of Greenfield claims that even if she had the opportunity to give the money back, she hasn't said whether or not she would give it back, but she's made it clear she doesn't think she has the right to give it back at this point in time, and we think that's dead wrong. And right. Then, well, I just want to be cl- clear. What, what we're talking about is these tax takings happened before the United States Supreme Court ruled that it was unconstitutional to engage in this practice, so it's a retroactivity issue. And the other thing I want to point out, Tom Lesser, is this is usually just really poor people. For many of us, our greatest asset is our home. 
for people who can't afford taxes, generally property taxes, generally speaking, is because they don't have enough money to pay their property taxes because they realize that their homes are being threatened. And then the, the city also attacks, attaches all these costs in the collection of this money. It usually inures to the detriment of poorer people. Isn't that right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, these were family homes. These people had huge attachments to their homes, and they couldn't pay $10,000 in taxes. They knew if they paid $10,000 in taxes, they'd get their home back, but they have to keep on paying that every year. They didn't have the capacity to pay that, so it accumulated over a number of years, and Greenfield decided it wanted to take their property, these family homes, and in one case, they sold it to a developer who bought it for $80,000 and turned it around within eight months and sold it for over $300,000. So the question before the court, and tell us what court is it and when will the case be heard, uh, is whether or not the Supreme Court decisions that says these takings are unconstitutional, whether that decision applies to takings that have occurred in the past before the Supreme Court decided. Is that the narrow but critical issue that's before the court in your case? The case is pending in the United States District Court at the present time. Greenfield, we filed our complaint. Greenfield make a, made a motion to dismiss. We opposed it. And there's a hearing on Wednesday in U.S. District Court that's open to the public. They can listen in and hear the arguments. Federal District Court where? Federal District Court in Springfield. It's Judge Hillman sitting. He usually sits in Worcester, but he was assigned to this case. I just, I don't want to invade uh, attorney to attorney uh, privileges, but um, is there discussion with Greenfield's counsel about whether or not this is really something they want to move forward on? If not on a tactical basis, that it might be in Greenfield's interest not to proceed on this, but on a human basis, that it might not be in Greenfield's desire to proceed with this. I think we have to win the motion to dismiss to even get there. Perhaps we're going to have to win a motion for summary judgment to get there. It's a case that's brought into the Civil Rights Act, Section 1983. They're paying our attorney's fees. If we prevail, you would think that they would want to settle this case. You would think that they would want to say, yes, we did this. We were doing it according to state statute. But now we realize we are acting unconstitutionally, and we want to compensate people who have suffered because of our constitutional actions. If Greenfield has been doing this for years and years and years and has taken and taken the home equity away from people, really just ripped it out of their hands and bank accounts for years and years, is it possible if you were to look back over 10 or 20 or more years that we're actually talking about a very large sum of money that Greenfield would have to give back to uh, former homeowners and or their families? That gets us into the issue of statute of limitations and whether or not it's so long ago that you couldn't bring an action at this point in time. And that case law is quite unclear. Well, Tom Lesser, we thank you so much for being here today. And thank you so much for bringing these two lawsuits, one to uh, vindicate the state's rights to all of our rights for marijuana um, and to uh, remedy those past uh, offenses, in my view. Uh, regarding marijuana and also the tax equity cases. It's just clear as a bell to me. It is unfair. And thank you for representing those people who were victimized by it. Yeah, it's no question that it's unfair. The legal question I take it, Tom, is going to be, is the Supreme Court's decision retroactive? And does it apply to Massachusetts? It, it, that's, that's from another state. 
they differentiated a New York statute, which we think is nowhere near like ours. We think we, our statute is uh, is the same as the Minnesota statute, but they'll have to decide that. Which also. was before the Supreme Court that the Supreme Court said was unconstitutional, allowing the taking of the equity that people have in their homes. The state, the government, seizing people's money, the excess between the mortgage to the bank and what the home was worth. And that was, so, and that was, a, that was a unanimous, that was a unanimous decision. And they said at the end, you render under Caesar what is Caesar's, but no more. Well, that's a great place to leave it. Um, thank you, Tom Lesser. Thank, thank you, you for, for all you. Thank do. you for inviting me on these cases. When we come back, we're going to talk with Ava uh, Hawks of the uh, Social Thought and Political Economy uh, Program at the University of Massachusetts, one of the organizers of the protests regarding Israeli response to the horrors of October 7th in Gaza. We're going to be back with Ava. And after that, Megan Zinn with local author Suzanne Michelle Smith talking about her memoir right after this. Yeah, and I have questions about the takeover of the administration building Whitmore and whether or not that's going to happen again. We'll be right back. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Good morning for WHMP News. I'm Sarah Robertson. Amherst's Crest Department, which is an alternative to policing program known as the Community Responders for Equity, Safety, and Service, is looking for a new director. The program's goal is to send trained social workers to certain emergency calls where police are not necessary, such as mental health crises or domestic disputes. The program began last year with a 10-member staff led by Director Earl Miller, who has since resigned from his leadership position after two months of administrative leave in an internal investigation. Town Manager Paul Bockelman. Recognizing that there was clearly a vacuum in leadership with him being on leave, that's why I established the interim leadership team. The interim leadership team includes the fire department chief, the town's DEI director, and a representative from the police department. The interim leadership team is continuing the work of the department uninterrupted, said Crest Operations Assistant Kat Newman. The beauty of this work is that there are always people to help and always people that want to receive and both give that help. So I think even amidst sort of the current situation, that doesn't mean that lives stop and the work stops. According to Bockelman, the Crest Department will begin taking calls directly from the town's emergency dispatch line by the end of the calendar year. The suspect in a mass shooting in Lewiston, Maine, is dead. Authorities found 40-year-old Robert Card deceased with a self-inflicted gunshot wound on Friday night in a storage trailer in Lisbon, a town about 10 miles away from the shootings occurred. Card is the suspect in a series of shootings that killed 18 people and wounded 13 others at a bar and a bowling alley in Maine's second most populous city last Wednesday. Early voting is underway for some western Massachusetts cities with contested mayoral elections. Residents can cast their ballots beginning today in Westfield, Springfield, Chicopee, and North Adams. There will be no early voting in Greenfield, Pittsfield, or Agawam. Election Day is next Tuesday, November 7th. Where is your pain? In your knees? Hips? Your back? Don't let it sideline you any longer, and don't let them tell you surgery is your only option. Call QC Kinetics now. QC Kinetics is the nation's leader in regenerative medicine, restoring and repairing damaged joint tissue the natural way, using healing properties from your own body to bring you lasting relief with no drugs and no downtime. QC Kinetics is trusted by patients all over America with 150 clinics nationwide. Get started now so you can live big in 2024. Talk about a great use of your FSA and HSA. 
put them to work getting you the relief you need so badly. And again, there are no drugs, no downtime, and no surgery. Call QC Kinetics today for a free consultation. Let their medical professionals give you a better path towards that pain-free life. Call 413-992-5450. That's 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And welcome back to our show. There has been... Um, much activity on campuses across the country and right here at our own University of Massachusetts. Uh, there's been much discussion, concern, uh, protests, even a takeover of the administration building, Whitmore at the University of Massachusetts. And with us is one of the organizers of recent protests, our own Ava Hawks, who is an intern here at WHMP's Talk the Talk. Hello, Ava. Hi. Nice to have you on the microphone. Yeah, uh, we don't have to outsource to, to get people who know about this stuff. <laughs> no, we have a built-in guest, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So tell us, first of all, uh, you are a uh, senior in uh, social thought and political economy. Yep, You're quite so concerned about what ha was happening on the global theater, mm -hmm. certainly in terms of peace. Mm -hmm. um, so there has been a lot of um, activity mm -hmm. uh, generated by uh, the October 7th horror uh, of Hamas's attacks on Israel and then by Israel's response. So mm -hmm. why don't you tell us what your concerns are and tell us about the protests? Yeah, so our concerns are twofold. Um, first is with the uh, treatment of Gaza by Israel itself versus with the actual conflict itself. Uh, and second is UMass's complicity uh, in that treatment. Um, so there are various military contractors that are present at UMass's campus. Present, you know, when I say present, they run recruiting events. They um, they do heavy hiring of UMass, um, you know, STEM field graduates. Uh, STEM. When, uh, science, technology, engineering, and math. Thank you. Um, you know, so when those people graduate, it's the military contractors who are doing a lot of heavy lifting to get those UMass grads to work um, at their at their companies. And um, our goal, because, you know, UMass being such a being a place where this heavy recruiting is done uh, is complicit in, in a lot of ways. You know, f funneling graduates into these military contractors um, makes UMass grads, UMass alumni part of the war machine. And we want to uh, we want to control the amount of influence that these military contractors have on our campus um, and in that way contribute in some in some part to making our community um, not complicit in what is happening in the Middle East right now. I thought that one of the demands was to have the university take an institutional yep. stand and condemn Israel. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Yes. Yes. But not condemn Hamas? Well, the... We want the university to condemn Israel primarily because we recognize that it is an ongoing conflict and that Israel's response and the justification of self-defense does not adequately address um, the issues at hand. Um, what Israel's response um, has entailed is near indiscriminate attacks on Gaza um, that have not really addressed the goals of, you know, in some ways they have addressed the goals of taking out um, Hamas posts and strategic Hamas um, uh, positioning, um, but they have killed women and children. They've killed thousands of civilians. Um, and what we are asking the university to do is to take a stance on this conflict that says that that kind of response 
um, to that kind of response to an attack, that wide collective punishment, which is a war crime, collective punishment of the people of Gaza for the actions of a singular group, um, that is, you know, that is not that is not okay. Do you have any concerns about the institution, the University of Massachusetts, taking a public stand on a controversial issues? Many people would disagree with your recitation of facts, not to mention the perspective. But let's leave that aside. The university taking a institutional stand. Do you have any concerns about that having a chilling effect on discussions and debate? At, the, at and on the campus? No. Um, we have many people in our activist group that are, um, you, know, at, you know, we have active people at UMass. UMass Hillel certainly has also been active um, in, you know, pro-Israel groups like Students Allied for Israel have been active in this discussion. Um, so we don't feel as though our activity and our demands are having a chilling effect in any way. In fact, they've really mobilized um, a lot of people in ways that we haven't seen in years at UMass. What would satisfy your group? Well, we do want a condemnation of the collective punishment that Israel is visiting upon Gaza, and we want the military contractors off of our campus. So whether that's UMass uh, cutting ties itself or the military contractors deciding that it is, you know, an inhospitable uh, that UMass is an inhospitable environment, and they decide to leave on their own, either of those would be fine for us. Um, we just want we want the condemnation from UMass, and we want UMass to stop being complicit in whatever fashion that takes. Um, uh, in in the war machine with these military contractors. On the show, we had um, uh, people who are part of uh, Mass Tech, Mm -hmm. which have just gotten a $5 million grant from uh, the Healy administration in order to um, produce more uh, fiber optic technology for application from everything from healthcare to uh, manufacturing. Mm -hmm. Uh, At the same time, we were then told that they also have applications in the defense industry, and we know that 3L Harris, right here in Northampton, mm-hmm. which produces these optical, uh, they make contributions to our war machine. Um, we've it had produces pro- the telescopes for the submarines. Right, yeah. Well, more than that. It, it produces fiber optics that are, that are uh, used in, right now in the Iron Dome mm-hmm. that we hear so much about, which is stopping surface-to-air missiles in Israel. So uh, are you concerned that a complete prohibition against the University of Massachusetts research and development efforts for defense could have adverse implications for a lot of different applications? In, I'm, if I'm understanding it correctly, are you asking, like, am, am I concerned that cutting ties with military contractors could affect, like, future funding for the university? That is what I'm asking. No. Um, what we are asking in tandem with the university cutting ties with military contractors is also to move towards um, greener and more sustainable, uh, more sustainable technology investments. Um, and certainly, like, fiber optics, as you were, as we were talking about earlier, fiber optics, for example, it's important in you know, bringing internet and, you know, high-speed electronic services to people in different areas. Um, so we don't really, you know, when these um, these technologies have a broad range of applications, so by eliminating the the military component of it, we don't, we don't really fear that it's going to affect UMass's funding sources because still UMass is such a huge university that is doing so many great things um, that there's there's plenty more to, to sink money into, um, and we're asking it we're asking that money to be put into more more just um, more just causes. There was a takeover of Whitmore Administration Building. Fifty four people, I believe, were fifty seven. Fifty seven were arrested. Um, do you have plans to take over Whitmore again? 
because these demands are, are not going to be met. The chancellor's been really clear about that. Uh, the takeover of Whitmore, we're not precisely sure if it'll exactly be a takeover of Whitmore again, um, but we do have many more organizers and volunteers who are willing to um, willing to go face-to-face -face in regards to facing uh, consequences for civil disobedience, whether that's facing trespassing charges for sitting in past a building's closure, um, or you know something else uh, in terms of our strategy, but we have many many people that are are willing to um, are, are willing to get are willing to get booked for this. Well, Ava Hawks, thank you so much uh, for for joining us. We and we're, it's great to have you on the team. Yeah. We thank love you. the student activism. This is a complex issue. We could talk about it for hours and hours, and I'm sure you folks do. But uh, we do appreciate your activism and your concern for the state of the universe. It's really great. Thank you. Well. It's also time for Writer's Block with Megan Zinn. Every week, Megan comes and uh, just enlightens us with more from the world of literati. Hi. Hi, Buzz. Um, my guest today is Suzanne Michelle Smith, um, a local writer. Uh, Suzanne recently published her first book, her memoir, Ag and Gunner, with Gallery of Readers Press, a small publisher in Northampton. Welcome, Suzanne. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Um, so tell us about your memoir, Ag and Gunner. Um, so I think it's a book about, um, in part saying goodbye mm -hmm. to a generation mm -hmm. of, um, folks who came before us, um, in such a way that maybe we, um, didn't ask all the questions that we <laughs> wish we had. Yeah. Um, and so, um, and it's primarily, it's a memoir of your family, of your grandparents, of aunts and uncles. Yes, Tell us a little bit and more of those details. Primarily, um, it gets its name from my grandparents. And um, that is about me as a child looking at their somewhat strange relationship um, and really wondering most of my life um, how they could possibly have come to be the people who are on the front of the book, who are <laughs> elderly and holding hands. <laughs> Um, can you read a, a selection from the book? Sure. Um, I'm going to start with the, the first piece. Um, it's called House. I see the light and the shadows of the cars going by on the ceiling of our grandmother's bedroom while I lie in her bed. My sister, Lainey, is in our grandfather's bed, which is separate and twin. I lie there and I cry. When she asks me what is wrong, I say it. I say it out loud a fact that I have observed that day, an unmistakable, heartbreaking fact. I say, grandmother doesn't love grandfather. Grandfather is the sweetest of men. He took me to see Pippi Longstocking just because I called and asked, and he let me drive the mail truck while I sat on his lap. Sometimes when I come over, he shakes my hand, slips me a dollar bill, and says, go buy yourself an ice cream. And sometimes we take an old loaf of bread and feed the ducks at the pond in Winchester Center. I don't mind that he doesn't like that John Elton, as he calls him, because he walks with me to the little store to buy milk and a newspaper, and he teaches me how to let the waves come in over my feet, burying them with sand as I stand perfectly still, just like him, with my hands clasped behind my back. The trick is not to move our feet, or wiggle our toes, or we'll have to start all over again. 
Later in the afternoon, we take a slow walk to the jetty looking for shells, and if we're lucky, we find a sand dollar. But grandmother yells at him, says, you're going the moon, whenever he has an idea or tries to express an opinion. I asked grandmother one time, why do you call him Gunner? Well, she said, whenever I'd ask him to do something around the house, he'd say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna. <laughs> I love that. Um, that was Suzanne Michelle Smith uh, reading from her memoir, Ag and Gunner, which um, was published by Gallery of Readers Press with a small publisher in Northampton. So Suzanne, you're not a writer by profession. Um, and... Um, Tell us what you what your day job is. Okay. So my day job is um, I work in higher ed. I'm director of research and evaluation at the Massachusetts Department of Higher Ed. Um, and I've worked in higher education for a number of years. I worked um, down at Springfield Technical Community College mm -hmm. for a number of years um, in doing um, research. So I'm a numbers person. Yeah. I work with data. Yeah, yeah. What made you want to write this memoir? How did it come about? Well, um, I think I've been, you know, I've been writing since fourth grade, probably, but um, for the last 10 years, I've been writing in writers groups. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's the other part of my brain. Um, it's not the part that's going to um, pay the bills. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I've been writing in these writers groups. Um, I found myself uh, going back to this kind of theme of place and family and kind of a little bit of economic history of my family um, and the relationships. Um, and so uh, what what happened was um, Carol Edelstein of Gallery mm -hmm. of Readers Press um, had been in the writers group that I'm in and um, had finally said, she, she sent me an email and said, we think it's time. <laughs> I have to and, publish it. Um, you know, and asked for a collection. And we, we thought that this, this was yeah, the right one. That's lovely. <laughs> I'm talk it is lovely, mm -hmm. yeah. And it is Megan Zinn who's talking with local author Suzanne Michelle Smith about her memoir, Ag and Gunner, published by Northampton's Gallery of Readers Press. And uh, Suzanne also happens to live in the center of the universe, Ashfield, Massachusetts. <laughs> we'll be back with Megan and Suzanne right after this. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Power to the people. Tag your it. Tom Hartman, weekdays at noon. Tom Hartman Program, your home for the resistance, commentary, conversation, and common cause. Join me, Tom Hartman, every weekday from noon to 3, right here on WHMP. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. Rutabagas, sweet potatoes, turnips, and leeks. Local produce is rooting its way to the co-op every day. At the co-op meat counter, try coffee-rubbed hanger steak, a delicious mix of sweet and bold heat. New recipe and you need just a pinch of this herb or that spice? Get just the right amount in the co-op's bulk department. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. 
At Greenfield Savings Bank, one of the things we love about living in the Valley is all the locally grown food that's available here. For more than 25 years, a local nonprofit called CISA, which stands for Community Involved in Sustaining Agriculture, has been promoting locally grown food and supporting farms, farmers markets, and food businesses in our Valley. And to support CISA's mission, Greenfield Savings Bank is giving new customers a CISA canvas tote bag as a thank you gift when they open a new free GSB checking account. There are no monthly fees, no transaction fees, and you get free online banking, free e-statements, free debit card, and free GSB mobile app, including depositing checks from your mobile device. Our existing customers can also get a CISA Canvas tote bag when they enroll in GSB's free mobile banking or sign up for e-statements. So, join GSB and show your support for locally grown food and local banking. Get your CISA Canvas tote bag thank you gift from Greenfield Savings Bank. See bank or visit greenfieldsavings.com for full details. Member FDIC, member DIF. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, and WHMP. We are back eavesdropping on a really wonderful conversation between our own Megan Zinn and local author Suzanne Michelle Smith talking about her memoir recently published by Northampton's Gallery of Readers Press, Ag and Gunner. And let me, let me interrupt if I might, Megan, for just a moment. So if our listeners have not heard, the news of the hour is that the strike by the UAW against General Motors apparently has been settled. And wow. where GM goes, can Stellantis be far behind? The answer to that is no. And congratulations to the UAW. Yeah. We don't have the details yet, but we will be covering the settlement, obviously, on the show. It still has to be to ratified. Of course, that's true. Yeah. Wow, wow, fascinating. Um, getting back to literature and memoir, um, are, there, are there other mem- memoirists, if that's the proper word, who inspired you or have you really enjoyed? Um... I have to think about that. Um, you know, I'm not sure. I'm a big fan of um, nonfiction, okay. creative nonfiction, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and historical fiction. Um, I can't say that I've actually read a lot of memoir okay. myself. Um, I don't have a favorite. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, um, th- oh, that, which is fine. fine. It's interesting because then you come to it without without an idea of how one has to do a memoir and exactly. your own ideas and your own really your own voice, which what is lovely. What is a memoir? Oh, well, that's do you. Do you have answers to that? I think we've discussed that before. But I have ideas, but as, as opposed to biography, yes. an autobiography. Yeah. I've always thought that memoir is more about memory. And um, it's not necessarily a uh, direct line, at, like an autobiography, which you expect from an autobiography. Um, it's, mem- it's memories. It's not necessarily following um, a strict timeline. And it's not always necessarily the truth that we find it, but your memory of what happened and your ideas of the truth. Exactly. And what, what's been very interesting about this is that I'm the youngest of eight children. And so my, our mileage does vary. Yes. Um, and so I tried to write this in such a way that it, that it is my memory and that in some, in some ways I'm, I'm struggling with it. I'm mm-hmm. trying to understand it. And I have had feedback that I have this unreliable narrator. <laughs> oh, and so, which, which at first I, I was all like, all memo- oh, yeah. is an unreliable narrator, essentially. <laughs> right. Yeah. But yes, and I, and I, um, I see that come through in, when I reread the book. And I know that um, 
it's really the wonderings of a child kind of mm -hmm. looking at her environment and trying to figure out how does this work? Who are these people? Yeah. And my impressions um, and my experience with my family are actually different from my older siblings because they had, you know, had them right. earlier. Right, absolutely. I'd like Bill. to go back, if I might, to this question of memoir versus autobiography. Mm -hmm. Correct me if I'm wrong. I thought autobiography tend to be an entire life, at least up that's, to that that's, point. That's kind and of how I and see a, it. And a memoir it. could be more of a selected slice mm -hmm. of life. Right, yeah. Does that apply in this oh, situation? Oh, definitely, definitely. And this is, um, this is so much about... Um, this certain part of my life, this certain part of my family that I didn't ask. They're, they're quirky. It's mm -hmm. quirky. And I didn't ask enough questions. And so um, it's been a lot about my reflection on that side, that Irish Catholic family around Boston um, that was my father's side um, and trying to figure out how they ticked. Yeah. Yeah, it's also, um, in some ways, it's a memoir of physical spaces, too. You, It's really a memoir of homes. There's a, your family homes and the way that you talk about them, and th they're like characters in this. Is that is that intentional? Um, it's it's not, not intentional per se, but I think I have developed that sense of place because mm -hmm. it's just something that I, uh, yeah. has been revealed to me. It's really important to me. Um, and so the first piece in this is all about a house that was lived in by several generations um, outside of Boston in Winchester, Mass. Um, and when we had to say goodbye to so many of those generations, we finally had to go in and clean that house. And it was layered, mm -hmm. layered with history, everything from, you know, work history um, to religious history to... <laughs> Letters. I mean, yeah, it, all those and that was part of the exploration. Mm -hmm. Did you? Um, I'm, I'm speaking with Suzanne Michelle Smith, who's uh, the writer of the memoir Ag and Gunner, um, um, published by Gallery of Readers Press in Northampton. Um, as you took this deep dive into your family history, were there things you discovered that you, kind of major things you discovered that you hadn't known or that you hadn't remembered? Oh, absolutely. Um, so there was always this talk of, you know, well, they ran a speakeasy, ah. you know, back in during Prohibition. But as it turns out, um, it was it was even deeper than that. So it was in the 80s. I found some, I mean, 1880s. Okay. I found uh, two newspaper articles um, where there had been a raid on my great-grandmother's house, um, <laughs> and uh, there was there was a volume of booze. This was in Burlington, Mass, um, next to Winchester, um, that had never been you know had never been found before. A raid you know like this had never taken place. Yeah. something like that. But um, so it had actually that activity, that economic activity, had gone on for much longer mm -hmm. um, than we thought. Interesting. And, and we think you know had some effect on who my grandmother became. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you and you definitely explore that. Um, in, in the memoir. Um, and this memoir is very much about aging and taking care of aging family members, um, about Alzheimer's, um, which um, several family members have had. It, has the process of writing changed the way that you think about aging? I think so, yes. Um, and I think that I have come to appreciate, um, and especially with Alzheimer's and memory loss, I appreciate being with the person who is there now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I have gone from maybe thinking, oh, I wouldn't want to live that way, or mm -hmm. um, to, to saying, no, um, this person here um, is here, wants to be here. I'm going to be with that. 
Um, not the memory which, of the person they were before or the idea yes, of the, per- yeah, the yes. person they are and now. It's, it's hard. It's yeah. not an easy thing to do. That's really beautiful and something that I think um, a lot of people struggle with that. And, and it strikes me as a really beautiful way of being um, being here now with 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 um, w- and, and, and grappling with Alzheimer's. I think that's so interesting, Suzanne Michelle Smith, because what that says is that by writing a memoir, it's not just um, you are uh, chronicling the reflections that you've had in the past about your past and your family's past, but instead you're learning. Mm hmm what you didn't know yeah. about your reflections. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I and what really struck me when we were cleaning out that house, and I think I say it in the book, was that it feels infinite. <laughs> Just the things we can't know. And mm. I don't really want it to end. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, I want to open a speakeasy after that. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Um, so uh, this I was, do too. This might be an unfair question, but if you, um, if you're children or grandchildren, um, if you have grandchildren, write a memoir of their experiences with you. What would you like them to write about? What would you um, like them to remember? I, I would like them to be honest. <laughs> and that's rough. Yeah, <laughs> That's a brave thing for me to say. Um, but I would like me, I like them to be honest because I think that we're all complicated. Um, and I, I feel okay about um, them exploring the those complications. Yeah, that's nice. Um, and are you writing more? Are you currently writing? Um, currently writing something? I, else? I well, I am. I am. And um, my my big desire right now is to go a little deeper into um, kind of the economic history, as I mentioned ah, before, mm-hmm. of this. Place. You are an economist. I am an economist, <laughs> and when I studied economic history, it was systems, and um, I'm I'm interested in how that um, intersects with family life. Um, yeah. So in this area, it was the tanneries. Mm-hmm. Uh, people who came from Ireland worked in the tanneries and uh, most of my family, um, the men the men did that and the women were seamstresses and speakeasy runners. <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> um, but I, you know, I think I'm interested in going deeper in that yeah. realm. Yeah, that's a really interesting story. Um, as um, before, and before we end, I wanted um, we're speaking with uh, Suzanne Michelle Smith about her memoir *Ag and Gunner* by Gallery of Readers Press, um, a small press in Northampton. How do people get a hold of this book if they would like to read it? Oh, and I yes. hope they will. Okay, so it is available on Gallery of Readers Press. dot org. Mm-hmm. Um, if you go to that website and you scroll down to publications, hit the link and you will see the blue. <laughs> the blue cover the blue with, book, with blue Ag and Gunner holding hands. Yep, Ag and um, Gunner holding hands, and you can purchase the book um, through the website. Wonderful. Well, thank you, you my know, guest. I, Yeah, mm-hmm. thank you, thank you. The other thing I have been just fixated on since you mentioned it, I forgot about Pippi Longstocking. Oh, I know. <laughs> I remember when that movie came out. <laughs> well, I remember the book. Oh, the book, too. And the movie, you were talking about going to the movie, and I remember um, when that came out. That's a, that's a wonderful <laughs> well, um, memory. But I'm, but I'm remembering that she was very strong, stronger than everybody else, including the boys that were yes. around. Mm-hmm. And she was quirky and... I got to go back and look at <laughs> Yeah, go look at that. She was a role model. Yes, <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> and I also just want just uh, one last question. It, as a result of writing this memoir, are you going to be writing again? Yes, I think so. I mean, I, I write on a weekly basis. Um, I write, and I, I'm finally, I think, inspired and encouraged um, to pull something together. Um, like to write a, a historical fiction. And we hope book. you do. Megan Zinn, thank you so much for bringing Suzanne Michelle Smith. Thank you. Her memoir is Ag and Gunner, is published by Northampton's Gallery of Readers Press. 
And uh, like Suzanne, don't just talk the talk. Let's all walk the walk. Our school communities thrive when they address students, families, and educators' well-being. That's why the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education offers schools and districts the tools to meet these needs through our Office of Student and Family Supports. Caring for each other, growing together, back to school, better. Visit doe.mass.edu slash growing together. Sponsored by the Massachusetts Department of Elementary and Secondary Education. You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts and messages from community nonprofits. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls. WHMP.com, a Northampton radio group station. It's 11 o'clock. 